Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. I, I wanted to tell you a story because I saw Tim Rice this week, uh, a raconteur as well from the past uh, uh, yes a, a, a sound and fine raconteur what a what a showbiz life you lead Gary. i know i do, Lunch, I do. was it in london's fashionable west end <laughs> well not after we'd done had, <laughs> obviously um and um and we were talking about andrew Lou golden he told me that tim when tim was a young man uh before i guess he saw himself as a lyricist he 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 saw himself as a potential singer and he made a cassette for or whatever you made in those days tapes real a demo tape a demonstration demo tape. tape for andrew lou golden which he sent to andrew uh in hope that you know hoots andrew was the happening young thing he'd get management or he'd get a he'd get a record contract or something right immediately in fact <laughs> sorry on immediate yes he'd ne yes. he never heard anything of course um and about I don't know how long ago it was when andrew was was um researching his book stoned Andrew decides to call Tim Rice to talk to him about EMI for some reason, or one of those record companies or something that Andrew knew that Tim knew. Right. And, and he, he said, hi, I'm, I'm Andrew Lou Oldham. Lovely, lovely to talk to you, Tim. Thanks for taking my call. And Tim then said, but I just got to tell you, you know, all those years ago in the sixties, I sent you a demo tape of my, of my voice. Did you ever hear it? And, and Andrew said, give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> 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 I'll get back to you. Anyway, we're kind of in that sort of world of early sixties today. Well, we are, in fact, yes. And I've actually, because I've actually got another message from the same person as I have with Andrew. But um, this is a man who's done. I mean, we start off we're in a Beatlesy world, and then the whole singer songwritery. I mean, and this guy has never had a lull. I have been awash the last few days. I'm sure you've been the same, Gary. I've been awash in kind of lovely, luxuriant singer songwritery. You know, if it wasn't so bloody cold, I'd have put up a hammock, frankly. Yeah, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he went from the Beatles uh, with his own band, really, uh, Peter and Gordon, who covered Beatles, who had Beatles songs written for yeah, who, the yeah, Beatles. Yeah, who had, who had bespoke Beatles tracks. He then, he then helped to open the Indica Bookshop and Gallery, very, very famous, where John Lennon yeah, met. Yeah, him. yeah. Then he goes on to be A and R of Apple. We're going to go through management with, with uh, um, James Taylor. James Taylor and and then endless productions, endless all the way. Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> Linda Ronstadt, so much. Then all the way through to ending up with just recently that fantastic thing he did with Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. He just it, it's and it's ten thousand maniacs. He's that. Then various movie things and being head of music at studios and. A lovely, fantastic man who we met recently backstage at one of the uh, um, Nick Mason shows. Source for we, we did. We might regret saying that because it, we'll, we'll see. If he avoids it at the start of the conversation, then he'll, we'll know he hated it. <laughs> well, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Ah, oh, there he is. Fantastic. Lovely to see you, Peter. Nice to see you too. Good morning. Hey, and the again. Well, for, right. for being late, there's no, no, it was us messing you around earlier. Uh, the last few days. Nice to see. You. Where do we we met? So we met in uh, last saw each other in Santa Barbara. Was it, guy? Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yes, I'm in Malibu. So Santa Barbara is actually as easy for me to get to as LA gigs are usually. Like the Santa Barbara Bowl is easier than the Hollywood Bowl. It's much further, but the parking is hell at the Hollywood Bowl and all that stuff. So yeah, we think of, we think of Santa Barbara as local. But it's also like it's that thing whenever whenever I'm on tour, it's like please come and see us anywhere but London. Well, exactly. You know, yes, and it means, exactly. You know, that's why we had all that time to talk to you, and you know, it's really yep. nice. So exactly. it was lovely, and thanks yep. for doing this. Uh, Nick was on great form that night, wasn't he? He's always he's doing so well. Uh, and that, yeah, he was terrific. So much yeah. blood yeah. in his uh, system now. He's back on the drums. Yes, it's great, you know, and, and playing brilliantly. Yeah, because you saw you saw early Pink Floyd, didn't you, down at the UFO Club? I did, many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like? The Floyd at that point, I think their only psychedelic bit was. This guy Mark Boyle, who's oh a, yes, the Boyle family, yes, yeah. We, um, we, I think he did the all the hubbly bubbly bubbles, the light all show. that stuff, oil bubble, oil bubbles. Yeah, yeah that was about it. Although, yeah. no, because the funny thing is, the UFO Club apparently, because at the time this was incredibly hard to get, they actually were offered from the city of Westminster a three a.m. booze license, and oh. they turned it down oh, because they wanted the purity of the psychedelic experience. They want a load of drunks. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> These days we're back to a load of drinks, right? But you, well, exactly. you grew up in the sort of heart of it, didn't you, Peter? The heart of London as it became swinging, but well before the Beatles even. I mean, you were just living in the West End. Yeah, we lived first in Greenpool Street and then as, uh, eventually in Wimpole Street. And in fact, actually, sorry, Peter, there's something I want to jump in here because yeah. there's something in my research, there's something I learned about you the other day which made my heart swell with pride. Which is what was the first record you ever bought? Tommy Steele's Rock with the Caveman, which was written by Lionel Bart. Lionel Bart, yes. and Mike and Mike Pratt. Oh, like I that. forgot that. Yeah, I thought of it as Lionel, but yes, <laughs> yes, that is the first record I bought, and and, and one of the first, you know, in, in indigenous British rock records because everything else was covered. You know, Tommy well, Steele's. It was. Birth, I think, I think Tommy it, actually, Steele's, it, it kind you know, of officially is officially is the first English rock and roll record. Oh, I thought Move It was. Oh, that's true. All right. Yeah, I, Move it, I know Move It was the first rock and roll record recorded at EMI, for sure. Um, you know, that's as important as Elgar being the first recording of all, which was in, you know, early 19-something. The first words spoken from that podium were, play it as if you've never heard it before. That's how oh. we address the orchestra. Excellent. Yeah, my, my mother met Elgar, of course, in a musical oh. life. Wow, we're really three degrees of separation everywhere here today. Yes. That's right. But it's interesting you say EMI because this is a point. This is something you said that uh, because it was EMI Studios. Totally. It? it was never Abbey Road Studios. It changed the name to Abbey Road, I think, for purely commercial reasons. 
some some genius said, look, if we change the name to Abbey Road and change the logo to the Zebra Crossing, it'll be worth a lot of my money and we're trying to sell it. And everyone went. Yeah, yeah. Be- because because when the Beatles called their album Abbey Road, it's because they're walking across Abbey Road. It's nothing to do with the studio. Well, they weren't even walking across it. It was just that that's where the studio was. It was just like using, yeah. using the address, you know. So it, I, I it, never knew that. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, I did I. It's amazing. Wow. No, pe- is- people think that the album's named after the studio. Totally not. It's like calling Air Studios Haverstock Hill Studios. Yes, or exactly. Studios exactly. Road so. studios. And then calling your album Haverstock Hill just because you can't think about anything else. Yeah, exactly. Because you were there at the centre of so much that was happening from the beginning of the Beatles coming down. But maybe just to take a step back from that and just to um, to sort of set the scene of of you. I think you went to Westminster School, but were you, you, there was yes. music in your family, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. I mean, my mother was a professional musician. You know, she played in various orchestras, played in the Halle Orchestra for a while. I know that uh, for Sir John Barbarali. And and um, uh, so I, I grew up actually on the road, evidently, when I was a baby. You know, this first of all, that was the first time they let women play in the major orchestras because the, because the men were all out getting killed. And uh, as it were, or fighting for freedom, depending on which yeah. way you look at it. And so they let women in the orchestra. My mom told me that when they did concerts, the women were told to walk on behind the men and be unobtrusive. Um, wow. And, and uh, so anyway, uh, and that meant there were also a lot of babies. So apparently they'd be traveling with babies um, and, and a, some sergeant major would be put in charge of, you know, these however many babies the, the orchestra women had at the time. And uh, so I, 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 I was on the road before I knew it. You know, you're, in the ha- you're in the Halle crash. I guess so. Yes, exactly so. <laughs> and would that exactly. have been with your with your sister Jane? I suppose. I think. Well, I mean, it, when I was a baby, until I got to be two, Jane wasn't born. So I think we're talking about pre-Jane. All right. I think this She's was younger. actual baby, non un, under two. You know what I mean? Uh, and there's another sister, isn't Claire. There? Yes, who was born yeah. two years later. Again, we're yeah. two years apart each in each case. And were you a pianist? Did you get, gravitate to that, or was the guitar? No, I was. I, would, I was terrible at my piano lessons and never practiced. And, and I, you know, I obviously one of those pathetic people who go, "Oh, I wish I had," but I didn't. Um, yeah, same. Yeah, so I, you know, and I, I played the oboe for a while, and um, which was my mother's instrument. I played the bass for a while, but all badly, and never learned to read music properly. You know, I really and was there, was there an amazing sort of moment when? you talked about that first rock and roll record <clears throat> when there was a definite shift from say the trad jazz that was happening in the early sixties or, or, or was it heartbreak hotel? Was that the moment? It was heartbreak hotel. Um, y- yes, I was in a trad jazz band. Um, when I was playing bass, cause those, those were chords I could handle. Was it a chest Was it a proper bass? Or no, I played, a pro- I had, oh, we had a skiffle group with the chest bass. But yeah. then when I was learning the real bass, I played in a band led by Adrian line, the film director, oh, film director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Uh, he was. He played the trumpet, and he was the band leader. And uh, we, we used to have to get to gigs with my bloody bass on the tube and everything. It was a nightmare. But it's funny because the trad world was much more. That's where it was much more kind of political and engaged than say rock and roll was, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It's where. Yeah. I think so. I don't remember being politically area. involved, but yeah, could have been. Yeah. So I did a bunch of gigs with Adrian in that band, but then. And I can't remember what order it all happened in, but yeah, we had a skiffle group uh, and so on. Uh, so this, so I guess there's Elvis and there's Lonnie Donegan, really. Yeah, well, Lonnie Donegan was a big hero of mine and, and still is. Um, 
And you know, as the big Lonnie Donegan fans, Jack White, I was interested to to learn. Yeah, and Billy I was, Bragg, I, I, of course. I got to know him a bit, and and we were talking one time, and he he, he revealed the extent of his Lonnie Donegan knowledge and and fanness, which was considerable. But without Lonnie, right. John Lennon wouldn't have created the Quarrymen, and absolutely no question. Yeah. Well, in Billy Bragg's book, I think he says the, you know, he wrote a book about Skiffle. It's brilliant, but um, and said. he yeah. said that there's estimated to be fifty thousand skiffle groups in England at the peak of the craze. Wow, which is, incredible. which it sounds incredible, but when you think about it, you know, I had one. Most of my friends in the music business had one. The Beatles had one. It's kind of not surprising. Fifty thousand is, is is a moderate yeah. number. Well, it's exactly the same DIY ethic as punk was, isn't it? It's yes. it came from exactly the same yes. place. Exactly. But what what came first? You meeting Gordon and deciding to form a group together, or the Beatles. Oh, um, me meeting Gordon and deciding to be a duo. Um, before that, as I say, we'd, it would be the Skiffle Group. And I also used to, I had an earlier duo with Andy Irvin. Do you know who that is? No. Um, uh, Andrew Irvin, he was then. He became Andy later on. Um, he's, if you look him up, he's sort of, he, he qualifies now as an Irish folk singer, but he wasn't actually Irish. He became Irish. <laughs> he was a terrific singer and, and, uh, He's, he's quite well known and successful in that whole circuit. And, but I haven't seen him for years, but we, we used to sing together. And I think he was in the Skiffle group for a while too. But yeah, when I met Gordon, um, yeah, we just, we both were crazy about American rock and roll. And, and obviously in, in our case, the, our particular idols were the Everly Brothers. Is, yes. you know, being a duo, that's yeah. automatic. <laughs> you seem to get quite, quite cool gigs from the off in terms of the places you play. Yeah, I don't know how, I don't remember how we got the gig at the Pickwick Club, which was key, because that's where we were, quote, discovered. Um, we got, we had a lunchtime gig at a place called Tina's Bar, where we got a pound each and a pint of beer. And and we we actually got that gig from another duo, Chad and Jeremy, because they, they, they were playing at Tina's Bar and got discovered by John Barry and signed to Ember Records. I don't and, know them. They're American, are they? Oh. Chad and Jeremy? No, they're English, but... They were successful in America, not in England. Jeremy's an actor, but now, but um, a couple of huge hits in America. Did you not prop up at the bar and sort of perform every night at the Pickwick yes, Club? Yes, we did, yes. And who was there? Who would have been in the audience? Uh, oh, that's the first time I ever met Michael Caine. Harry Seacombe was a great <laughs> customer and tipped very well. Um, of course he is Pickwick. <laughs> I mean... Yes. But, <laughs> but it was, no, the reason for Pickwick, it was all, it was owned by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus. Oh, wrote, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I know my dad used to go there. My parents used to go there. How far up? You wrote, um, yeah. I wonder if they heard us, probably. And they probably um, I should ask my mum. They wrote uh, a musical called Pickwick. That's right. And yeah, that's yeah. that's what it was named after. And Anthony Newley obviously used to come there. Leslie Brickers, who, as you probably know, died just recently. Yes. Um, yeah. Who was a wonderful man in every way. But I, I can't actually remember how we got the Pickwick Club gig, but it was a great gig. It was much better than the pubs and coffee bars we used to usually play. And that's where we were discovered by Norman Newell, A&R guy for EMI. And so, so what would have been the first, were you writing your own music then? No, no. We would do Everly Brothers, um, folk songs, Elvis Pete, songs, what, what, sorry, Buddy PC, songs. folk songs? Was it Woody Guthrie kind of folk yeah, songs? Yeah, what folk songs? Yeah, that's yeah Woody Guthrie. And the, the one that Norman liked our version of a lot was 500 Miles, you know, folk traditional, one of those songs that everybody did. We'd learned it from John Baez. We actually, much later on, many years later, got to perform it with John Baez, which was amazing. But wow, um, 
we were doing a gig in LA and she she happened to be in the audience when I told the story about learning it from Joan Baez and she came on stage. Was Dylan happening at that? I guess. I never I've never been the world's biggest Dylan fan, to be honest. Um But no, we I don't think Gordon was a Dylan fan. Gordon also discovered Randy Newman very early, along with Alan, oh, wow. along with Alan Price, of course, who did too. But Gordon um yeah. loved Randy Newman, loved and he was more of a Dylan fan than I was. Is that because I think, looking at your career, uh, Peter, you're, you're obviously very, very much drawn to singers. Yeah. He's a really, really good singer. And so Bob Dylan that isn't. Perhaps exactly. Kept you, you, yeah. I was trying to skirt the issue there. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, a moment, do you think, in, in London, Peter, where there was, there was a shift from, okay, so you've obviously now you've got a club where you've got some sort of working class stars, but they're all actors, right? And... But but was there a moment when the ground felt like it was shifting and young kids were now sort of taking it over? Yes, there was that feeling. And it turned out it was really kind of only in London and only a bit, you know. Um, but at the time, yes, one did get that feeling. I mean, I think the, the Beatles did contribute to the, the, the decay, if not the downfall of the class system, which still, of course, exists. So they weren't quite success, as successful as it seemed at the time. But yes, there, there was... You know, these, the, the, the fact that, because initially the upper classes, you know, are very condescending towards cheeky, entertaining, working class chaps, you know, lads. And, uh, and in this case, they, they really did kind of take over, leaving the, the, the upper classes to rattle their jewellery is this phrase. Yes, right? of course. <laughs> well, then there became a great cross-pollination, didn't yeah, they? I mean, yeah. rock stars all, all hung out with toffs. You know? well, the, well, the toffs thought they were, you know, entertaining. All the other way around. Exactly, yeah. exactly. yeah. But was, was there a club, do you think, that, that, or a shop that everyone went, That's, this is where the gravity is? Uh, well, we used to go to the ad lib a lot, at dollies, um, shops, things like Granny Takes a Trip, and um, we all went to and... Can't remember what else, but yeah, yeah there, was, there were a handful well, of. Of course, you had a you had a part in one of the important places in 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 Indica. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we can get on to Indica first. I guess what yeah, we have to I, have is, first, yeah. is 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 your sister meeting Paul McCartney because yes. that kind of brought you closer to the center of everything, didn't it? Yes, correct, exactly. What what, what, what just just tell that story, Peter? Well, um, she she was you know she she was a celebrity at the time as and a highly respected actor and and very gorgeous and all that stuff and she also was known to have you know to be very musical she'd already been on jukebox jury um and her opinions were always you know interesting and well phrased and so on so i think it was in that context that she was invited by the radio times to go and see the beatles i think it was a um would it be enemy or melody maker some poll winners concert i think the beatles had won um, best new band. What a shock! Everything, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and this was early on. So this was, it wasn't a Beatles concert. It was a whole winners concert. You know, so right. they only they did a few songs, but she thought they were amazing. And then she was taken backstage afterwards to meet them as the sort of visiting celeb. And and that's when, uh, you know, she, she liked them. They liked her. One of them liked her in particular. And Paul asked her out. She's seventeen or something, and he just seventeen. You know what I mean. Yes, <laughs> I uh, that I wasn't, that wasn't about. To be honest, though, I don't know the dates, but but she was she's obviously younger than than Paul, and Paul was a baby then anyway. But 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 yeah. Paul started to live it. Where does Paul Where does Paul McCartney take Jane Asher on a first? You know, don't, don't know. That's not what I want to know. Don't know. But you oh, you must have been thrilled then, as a musician yourself, to to have this guy around. 
the house. Yeah, I was. I was. I think I was. I was a bit of a. I was still a bit of a jazz snob at that time. I was. You know. I yes. I mean, he was charming and brilliant. You know, and I was. I was happy to meet him, but I wasn't overwhelmed with star fever because you know it would have to be Charlie Parker for that to happen. But can I just get some clarity? At that stage, of, at that stage of my life, I think that, to be honest, I, I grew to realize what a brilliant writer and performer he was later on. He's living at yeah, your yeah. house with your parents. Eventually, he, he moved into the guest room. Yeah. Oh, well, there is one thing that I tried to ask you about. Well, it's not. I tried to ask you. Unfortunately, I have. I've got the story. I have is a bit garbled, and I tried to get in touch with the relevant guy, but he hasn't replied to my email. Which is someone who was going out with. I don't know if it was a granddaughter of of your mother's or. If there's such a thing, but he said he was at your house and had to look after your mum one night, and when and she was quite old at the time, and 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 she said that she'd helped Paul. So Paul wanted to learn string arranging, and she'd helped him write string. And she had somewhere a handwritten sort of string chart for yesterday. Oh, which apparently she got out and showed to him, and then it went who is, who is this, who back is this into person? this wall of papers. It's called Andy Trudy. No idea. Sorry. Okay. No, I don't know that. I name. can't imagine he'd be a bit. Yeah. But do you um, think, no, did your she, mother she, ever she, give any help to yeah, Paul? Yeah. But, yes. But the idea of your mum helping yes, you with string oh, she did. Is, is the key. Um, she <laughs> helped him with, with uh, you know, what, 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 you know, between her and George Martin, I suppose, um, at separate occasions. I mean, not together. But yeah, she, she, Paul was interested in orchestral music and orchestral instruments and which, what was what. I mean, um, and she did teach him some of that stuff. Uh, no question. That's and, and That's fantastic. Isn't that what a lovely thing? Yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly, having not been in either of those tutorials, you know, what, what was George Martin and what was my mum, but I know she contributed, yes. So is this just by coincidence that she taught George Martin? Yes. Oh, where did she teach George? This is widely written wrong. They keep saying... Oh, my mother must have taught at the Guildhall because she taught George Martin and that's where he went. But it's actually more, more complicated if you care about the, how it exactly happened. He was at the Guildhall School of Music. He, when you were studying piano and composition, you had to take a second instrument, uh, which you had to pass an exam on. He had chosen as his second instrument the oboe. He realized that he'd been giving his, given, giving his second instrument studies short shrift and he was concerned that his oboe playing wasn't up to snuff and he wouldn't pass the exam. He looked for an independent oboe tutor who could give him private lessons. My mother was oboe professor at Oil Academy, but which is, a, of course, a rival institution from the Guildhall. And, but she also gave private lessons. At the time, that would have been in our flat in Great Portland Street before we moved into Wimpole Street. So George would have come there and did come there for oboe lessons to get his oboe playing up to the level of his main instrument, piano. <laughs> so so, when, so by when, the time she subsequently ran into him um, as her daughter's boyfriend's record producer, it yeah. was like, oh, it's George. Oh, fantastic. And that incredible. So you get to know that, so how is the... Pure coincidence. George? <laughs> your band's first sort of, well, your, the, the big single was A World Without Love, which... Yes. Paul wrote. I yes. think it's down as Lennon and McCartney, but well, officially everything was. Well, well, how did how did that happen? Was John didn't like it because of the first line, wasn't it? He just said that shuts the song down. Yeah, he, he thought "Please Lock Me Away" was a ridiculous opening lyric, but apparently, <laughs> but and he would say to Paul, "Okay, I will lock you away. The song's over." But Paul, I think, wrote it. 
even a year or two before I met him, I, I, the, the, as much as he'd written, which was the verse. And I'd heard it and liked it a lot. And so after we got a record deal, when, when we got signed up at the Pickwick Club and we were looking for songs for our very first recording session, Norman had picked a couple already out of the songs he'd seen us do live at the Pickwick Club particularly, for example, 500 Miles, which hadn't actually been a single, even though it was a well-known song in the folk movement. But he said, if you know any other good songs, you know, bring them along. And uh, I'd heard this song uh, from Paul, and he told me that they weren't doing it, you know, that it was a, a reject, an unfinished reject, an orphan, as it were. And so I said, well, we've got a record deal now. Can we work up a version? Would you mind? And he said, no, fine. And wrote out. How would you have heard it? Sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, how would you have heard it? Would, would he have played it, or would he have had a demo of it? No, or? he cut the demo um, for me in my bedroom on my reel-to-reel tape machine. Um, before that, there was no demo. I'd heard it him play it live. Mm. Wow. And was it complete at that point? No, had no bridge. Um, now, when you say bridge, are you using the American term for a bridge? Middle eight, middle eight whatever you want to call it. Middle eight. Them. Yeah, yeah. You know the so I wait, and in a while, I will see my true love smile. That's the bridge. Yeah. And where's, please, like me, where's the verse? And, oh, because um, that has yeah. that wonderful bridge that get, it goes straight into the verse, doesn't it? It's really quite. So I went in a while, I see my trailer as well. When she comes in, I and then, so baby, until then, lock me away. Me away. Like yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Because it's got that, I'm wondering how much of it, because I know, because as you've said, you, you and Gordon was, were such big Everly Brothers fan. And I'm wondering, because obviously there's, there's a lot of really obvious McCartneyisms in it, but it's almost like, there's there's a real Everly's thing to that song, and I'm wondering if part of that was sort of Paul wanting no. to pay some homage because he loved no, the Beatles them. were into was it. That, no, that was yeah. us. Yeah, I mean Paul wasn't at the right. session, so all he had was the demo. And it's it's, it's Everly-ish, but actually kind of not. We we you know we had Andrew Lou Goldman last week, who, mm. who obviously got you know I want to be your man <laughs> written <laughs> for, for for the Stones by 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 Paul and John, and. I guess partly... Yeah, we used to sing that song at the Pickwick Club, just in parentheses. I mean, it, it, it shows how much times have changed. I'd heard Paul had played me the song after he wrote it, but I'd learned it just because I liked it. And we used to sing it every night. I want to be your man. Explain, yes, and explain that this was a song Paul had written It was going to be coming out by the Rolling Stones. That's amazing. And now, of course, if you did that for one night, one second, yeah, it'd be global instantly, but yeah. nobody got their phones out because they hadn't been built yet. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. I guess even the Beatles at that point, Paul and certainly Paul, saw himself as maybe, well, the Beatles are not going to be around forever, but I could be a songwriter forever, and maybe that's more important. Correct. Uh, well, not more important, but my, they, I suppose they can consider it possibly more long, more lasting. And certainly their idols, you know, weren't just Elvis and Eddie Cochran. They were Goffin and King and Lieber and Stoller. So, so there's no question. And, and indeed, there are interviews in which they say well, the traditional question of what are you going to do when this is all over, which we got to all the time. It was, a, it was the one guaranteed question because everyone knew you couldn't be a rock star for more than about two years. So at the time, that was the theory. Being a writer was was appealing to them. And they, as I say, in the, all those interviews, when they got the question, what are you going to do when it's all over? They would say, we will be songwriters. Of course. And you became also then the sort of always playing Beatles songs. Were you the sort of... Was it the record company saying, you've got to go back to those guys, you've got to get some more? Was Paul uh, well, and John just really into delivering songs for you? Well, to be fair, not always. We, we had some big hits that they didn't write. Uh, yeah. um, I Go to Pieces was actually one of our yeah. biggest hits in, the, in America, and that was written by Del Shannon. Yeah. But it, that we didn't, there was no asking involved. Um, the, the, each story would be different. But, I mean, our second single, Nobody I Know, Paul wrote as our follow-up single because in the in the songwriter's handbook, you know, everyone knows it says, you know, if if you have a huge number one worldwide hit, make sure you write the follow-up because someone's going to cash in if you don't. Yeah. It's the same thing as people actually ask me questions about, well, you know, when it went to number one in America and knocked the Beatles off or whatever, you know, um, weren't they annoyed that they didn't do the song themselves? And the answer is absolutely not, far from it. I mean, you're going to your record is eventually going to come down from being number one. That's a phys law of physics, you know. Yeah. Uh, it will come down. And if you're going to be replaced at number one, what better than being replaced by a song you wrote? So, Well, yeah, because you're getting the checks either it's way. Forwarding, it's forwarding, <laughs> both, both, making both careers work at once. So, yeah, no, Paul wrote a couple more songs for us, and then I Don't Want to See You Again. He just came and said, I've got a song for you. You know, we said, thank you very much. That's great. Wow. Um and you'd been interested in producing, hadn't you, from the word from first going into the yes, studio? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I, so I've got to say one thing, Peter, those records, those early records from listening to them the last few days, I forget who, who was producing them because the fidelity of them is beautiful, especially for that time. They're beautiful, clear records. The Peter and Gordon records, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yes, thank you. I mean, who, who, who it produced was, them? Norman Newell did the first Norman Newell. one and then John Burgess did a bunch of them. Why did, um, given what we're saying about songwriting, uh, why, why did Paul then decide to write that song "Woman" for you, but under Bernard Webb? Because because he had he he was aware that some people were saying anything with their name on it would automatically sell. The name Beatles or Paul McCartney would automatically make something a hit. So he wanted to put it out without people knowing he'd written it. The, the deception didn't last very long because it wasn't very well executed. But but yes, it was Bernard, or of course in America Bernard Webb, yeah. who that he wanted to see what happened if he didn't have his name on it. And it was a hit. When you you say it wasn't very well executed, I mean, how was it leaked? How, oh, because it was published by Northern Songs, so that was a clue right oh, there. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> of course, like what that. I didn't realise is McCart just... McCartney and Lennon have both written separate songs called Woman. Yes, true. Uh, we'll get on to Beatles so songs later when <clears throat> because there's an interesting bit with, uh, oh, with yeah. James Taylor in inspiring George's writing in a song title. But um, 
I suppose we have to go to the Indica Gallery, don't we, Guy? I mean, what? And which is we should go to the Indica Gallery. And talking of which, um, I sent a message to Marianne, faithful, saying that we were speaking to you today, and she said to send you lots of love. Great, yeah, I love Marianne. She's terrific. No, I was just going to say, you know, you start the Pickwick Club, and now you're in the Indica, which is the kind of ground zero of this sort of intellectual side of of psychedelia and what the burgeoning new movement, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that was a partnership, of course, with Miles. Barry Miles and uh, John Dunbar. And John Dunbar, yeah. Who was married to Marianne. Uh, yeah. I was the best man. You were best man at the wedding, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's Miles, Asher and Dunbar, otherwise known as Mad, right? Yes. <laughs> that, that's the company we formed, to, 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 which started Indica. And what was the thinking behind yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, to, to be, you know, we thought we had a cool bookshop and our gallery was what London needed. And, and we were admiring, you know, of... of uh, Berlin Getty's City Lights Bookshop in San Francisco and oh, things like that. So, so we just we wanted in on that movement, you know. Was it in any way tied to? Because there was the there was that big the the um, poetry thing at the at Royal Albert Hall, Rich Ginsburg and everyone. I think that was later on, and Miles was involved. Was that later? With that, but I was not. Okay. So, who were the artists going to be for the Indica Gallery? Was there a because I know eventually Yoko. Uh, yeah, we had. Her. I know we had Klaus Oldenburg at one point. We had. La Park, who's I'm not big on, on art, but um, various cool people who, who by whom if I'd bought one piece of artwork, I'd be retiring to the to, some to Malibu. <laughs> exactly. We had some major people in there. The revisionist history of the Beatles has it that John is the, the arty one. Uh, and that Paul was a commercial one. But up until that point, when John meets Yoko in the Indica, Paul is the arty one, isn't he? He's the one hanging yes. out at the opening. Yes. yes, he was the one reading William Burroughs and, and interested in all of that. And, and, and John thought it was a load of old cobblers. But I heard McCartney tell a lovely story about how he actually just went and knocked on Auntie, not Auntie, on um, Bertram Russell's door. Oh. to ask him about the Vietnam War. And apparently he went in and they had a lovely chat. I didn't know that. Uh, my father met Bertrand yeah. Russell. McCartney said I, I, yeah. I, I saw Bertrand Russell at a nuclear disarmament um, demo in Trafalgar Square, which we all got moved away by the police, but didn't actually get arrested. And um, I was a big admirer of Bertrand Russell. I read philosophy at London University, and Russell was a, I was a logical positivist by nature. But... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I did know that, but I, I'd forgotten that. Sorry. But so, so you're saying you weren't really interested in art. So was it the book side? Were you thinking? Was, yes. Was, there was. Was there a music? Com there wasn't a music component no. to the gallery. Or no. Was, no. No. But I was more interested in the books than the art. Yeah. And the books moved to Southampton Row. They they were in a slightly different area, weren't they? They were. They didn't move there. That's where it started. Oh, that's yeah. always there. Were you there when Yoko had her opening night and John arrived? Was yes. There? But no, I wasn't there when John was there. I'm trying to remember. Maybe I was only there the, the official opening, which was the next day or something. I don't actually remember, but no, I wasn't there when John was there. And what was the art like? It was an apple. Come on, you, come on. It was a decaying apple. I can't remember. That telescope you peeped through and read a yeah. word off a piece of paper and stuff like that. Did John buy that? He must have <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, he must have. No. Did, uh, Who's got it? Were Peter and Gordon still uh, recording at that point? Um, probably it would have been, that was the sort of transitional phase, I suppose. When he put out Lady Godiva. Yeah, might be. Yeah. Might. Which is so odd, isn't it? Because, you know, for all your, you, although you were a pop act, you, I mean, you had a certain gravitas 
to your work to you know in a simon garfunkley sort of way and this this is out and out absolutely i i wasn't oh, in particularly in favor of it but but gordon persuaded me not to be snooty and and uh that it i think you were right i think you were right well but it was a big hit and we, we hit? hadn't had a hit yeah. for a couple of singles so who wrote uh, it mike leander who also of course his beetle and his beetle connection is today's question ah I don't know. I know his later connection. No, go on. <laughs> he wrote the string arrangement for She's Leaving Home. Oh, did he? No. Which is beautiful, by the way. Which is it? beautiful. It's exquisite. It's the one where George said, oh, I can't do it. Let's do it next week. And Paul said, no, I'm hiring someone else. <laughs> he, he wanted to do it that day. So at some point you become, you're drawn into this new Apple company that the Beatles form and, yes. and asked to be A&R. Because yes. At that point, was it that you decided I'm better here on this side of the recording desk than the other side? Or was it something that you thought about because you were offered the job? No, no. I mean, two different questions, really. I mean, Gordon and I would, yeah, were sorry. fading out at that point. You know what I mean? Um, we Gordon wanted to make records on his own anyway. I think our manager, whom I have little respect, to get Rich Armitage, uh, um, uh, I was telling Gordon he should be a star on his own, which I think everyone believed he would be. Um, and I was kind of losing interest in it a bit anyway. And I wanted, to, and I decided I wanted to be a record producer just from being in the studio and seeing how it was done. And uh, so that you know, it just, it, it, you know, that it wasn't a specific decision, but that's how it worked out. We just weren't working much, and Gordon was t talking about making a record and so on. It was at day one of Apple, wasn't it, really, that you were... Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, from, from pre-day pre one. Yeah, first Paul right. had asked, he he knew that I'd produced some stuff, and indeed the very first record I ever produced, he played on for me. Um, played you, had a, you put together an amazing band, yeah, didn't yes. you? Yeah. It's insane, but Paul played drums, right? Paul played drums. This is on... Jeff Beck played Paul guitar, Jones's Paul record. Samuel Smith played... Paul Jones's Yes, record. that's yeah. right, yes. That was the first record I ever produced, first single track. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I mean, what a great way to start. Yeah. Well, I wanted to make Take No Chances and put a good band together. But it, And so did Paul Jones actually, because he was in the man, he was in man for a Man, did he then sign separately to Apple as a solo artist? No, no, no. He had nothing to do with Apple. This was before Apple. No, it was just Oh, I see, I see. It was for EMI, um, which Manfred was signed to and Paul was undoubtedly signed to as well. Um, and he had some hits on his own, of course. The one I did, unfortunately, wasn't a hit. It, Bubbled into the charts for like one week in the is that and the sun 40s. will shine what and the sun and, will shine and the solo hits he had were you know I've been a bad bad boy and stuff like that which were really good records um, no I owe Paul a debt of thanks because it's worth remembering that you know back then there was no way to persuade somebody you could or should be a record producer because you know without musicians and a studio. Whereas now, you know, you can sit with your laptop and go, listen to this. And, and someone can go, yes, you're brilliant. Um, that didn't exist. You, you, there, was, there was no way of exp explaining how or why you deserve to be given some money to make a record. So how did you end up with two of the Yardbirds to pull in? Where did you know those guys? Paul Samuel Smith and I were close friends. We were also, we used to go to all the Pink Floyd gigs together. We were big Pink Floyd fans. Ah. Uh, I saw them at UFO. And at some architectural school they used to play at mm -hmm. back in the Sid Barrett era. We were, and we actually talked at one time about um, 
producing the 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 Floyd, and that was that was moving oh. along, and then it all changed because they suddenly got signed by a different label or something. I can't remember the whole thing. Nick explained right. it to me. Nick remembered all this, and he he said, "No, no, that all came to an end." The talk about us producing the record oh, okay. when some label change happened. Right, right. Oh. So who did well, quiz who him. did you sign to Apple? The only person I totally discovered, as it were, and signed would be James. But um, you know, as head of A and R, you also execute the signing of people that somebody else brings in, you know, when George is going to make an album with Jackie Lomax or whatever it is, you know? So but you're so, yeah, as head of A&R, essentially you're signing everybody, but I certainly wouldn't take credit for anyone specifically, you know, beyond James, who, who, who I personally signed and insisted. James Taylor. Signed. Yeah. So, cause Mary Hopkin was there as well. She made a record. Well, there again, you see Paul, in her case, Twiggy was watching opportunity knocks on television. And with Huey Green, the oleaginous uh, yes. Huey Green, and <laughs> um, uh, uh, oleaginous, oh, yes, like it. Um, yeah, first time I'm rocking and, hers. And um, she called Paul and said, "You have to watch this girl." And Paul called me, as I recall. By the time I, I think, by the time I turned it on, she was finished. But she was on the next week. She was singing, I think, a Joan Baez song, though. But there, but for fortune. Um, no, I remember was, watching those. I remember that and, happening. And yeah. that's uh, yeah. and Paul said yeah. she's great. We should sign her. And so, I think it was Derek Taylor and I had to go to Wales to talk to her father and stuff, and convincing we weren't in the white slave trade. We really were a record label. And and uh, and we signed her up. And Paul already knew the song he was going to record. Is He'd it, seen that, was those it, were the days, right? Well, yes, those were the days. Those were the, which I had. I remember. Those were the days um, he, he'd it... heard it sung by a, an American duo called Gene and something, and at the Blue Angel nightclub sometime previously, and made a mental note of the song because he thought it was a hit. Peter, is it fair to say because it sounds like the, the record side right at Apple is is functioning well? There's good stuff happening. It's worth saying that this is the one part of the Apple organization. That is. I mean, you weren't you kind of surrounded by it, it was chaos. Magic else. Alex. Like the, you got Magic yeah, Alex. Yeah, he was a fraud. But, yeah. yeah, a total. I mean, extraordinary. He seems such a such a cautionary tale of what happens when you're when you have that bubble of fame and someone manages to get inside. Yeah, I always thought once, he was a fraud. Once they're in, yeah, they're in. I yeah. didn't believe a word he said. But also, you have the boutique and everything. I mean, it was it was nuts, wasn't it? everything? Else, but it's, but the, the 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 music part of it. Seems to be the one stable, yeah, successful it, yeah, it, thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. So, so you signed. So James Taylor gets signed to Apple for the first album. Yes, just the first album. And so, how did you? I mean, discover the only, James. The, yeah, the the Apple album. Yeah. How did you but, discover yeah. James? A key figure in this is Danny Korchmar, a guitar player, yes, an American Danny, guitar yes, player. Wait, wait for when, when we fabulous, played America, fabulous player. When Peter and Gordon played America. Uh, we were supplied by local backup bands, usually by region, you know, whoever was promoting like the Northwest or something, they would hire a band. And of course, they usually wouldn't hire individual great musicians. They would hire some out of work group and say, you know, learn these kids music. And one of those bands was a band called the King Bees, uh, led by Cooch. And um, they played with us on a couple of tours. And Cooch and I became friends and stayed in touch after Peter and Gordon had finished touring. So I was a big admirer of his playing. He was a big Steve Cropper fan as I was and 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 so on. Great guitar player. 
And he was subsequently in a band called The Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. They'd known each other since they were 11 or 12 from Summering on Summering Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. Vineyard. Yes. Yeah. And so James, the, the, the Flying Machine, was suffering every vicissitude New York has to offer. They, they were you know, broke and had terrible managers and the record label went broke too. And um, they were, several of them were strung out on drugs, including James. Band broke up. James decided to go to London. Um, he thought, I think he thought he had a girlfriend in London he could stay with, which turned out he couldn't, but he <laughs> came to London and Cooch had given him my phone number, just saying, this is my friend in London. We, we were still in touch. We write, write letters, believe it or not, back and forth. And so he gave James my phone number and James called me up and said, I'm a friend of Cooch's. And I said, come over. And he played me some songs and I went crazy and said, I've just got this new job. I'm head of A&R for a brand new record label. And would you like a record deal? And he said, yes, I would, please. Thank you very much. And that was that. Because I've got to say, Peter, that you've, you're on record as saying you made that first album and it didn't really hit <clears> because <throat> you thought maybe it was too sugary or too overproduced. And you thought the second one when it stripped down is when things hit. Yes. And I disagree. I think, I think that first album is absolutely magnificent. Well, thank you. I, I mean, um, yeah, I know James thinks it was overproduced and I, I lean towards that point of view myself certainly i mean commercially there's no question i don't i don't at all I don't. there's no there's, <laughs> I mean, commercially, there's no question first yeah. one was a flop second yeah. one was a hit but um yeah. yeah that's a fact but but uh thank you no i i'm i'm lucky i've been talking to james about remixing that album in atmos because oh, it would it's the it's the album that would really gain a lot from that because yeah, of the string quartet and the definitely. brass quartet and the, all the things i put on it yeah but it's so funky. It's fantastic. Thank you. The breadth of stuff on it. Well, and I think later oh, on, your horn arrangement, the horn arrangements uh, are insane. later on in in Je when when you're producing uh, albums you know, later on in James's career. You know they are getting funky. There are there is that sort of little feet area of music that you're drawing yes. from. But yes. I guess it's you're funny the you say that because there's stuff that almost reminds me of Robert Palmer, which is exactly well, they, you know they, yeah. territory. Yeah. But I guess yeah. Peter, you you're when you made that first album. You weren't with James in London. You weren't so aware, or were you, of the shift that was happening in California in the sort of Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter thing that was beginning to happen? Or was that something then, You once you saw, you had to take James too? No, I mean, we, we were going back to America anyway. James wanted to go home, you know. So we knew we were, I, I was convinced his career would be based in America. I don't remember the chronology of when I first heard Joni O'Neill or, any of those people i mean it was certainly happening and we knew we wanted to be on warner brothers because that's where they were and because the warner yeah. brothers had all those cool ads you know that stan cornyn wrote um i don't but, know those what are they oh there was a series of ads that a guy called stan cornyn whose book is worth reading wrote he uh who's a, a, a big executive at warner brothers which were very funny um and clever and it was one that Joni hated i can't remember what it was but I was impressed by those and impressed by the people they had. They had Joni and Neil and Eric Anderson and various other people whom we admired. And so that's where I, I knew we wanted to sign with that label, and we did. And did you want to live there? Were you going to move there? Did yes. You... I mean, I started off going to New York. I was in New York for a few months, but then L.A. Because you then started, and what's lovely is, is Cooch, as you call him, who then has this, you know, who is an amazing mm -hmm. guitar player who, who, and producer yeah. and writer. Yeah. And you've both had these lovely parallel careers, and he always comes in and out of your stuff. Yes, no, yeah, I was talking to him yesterday. Yes, yeah, really exactly. Lovely thing. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and uh, but and also because you then have this this wonderful thing where I've got to say this longevity you have with your artists, 
you know, especially with James, where you just you produce and you produce and you produce and you produce, yeah. which is same with which same is with rare. Linda, even when uh, same with yeah. Linda, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's a rare thing. You you know you kind of invent and then own the singer song. Well, well there is that well, moment. Yeah, there, obviously, there, there's that <laughs> moment when you know you're recording. You've got a friend, and Carol King is 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 around. It, that was a seminal shift, wasn't it? In 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 popular music, that song seems to hinge upon upon it all. Well, yes. Well, what's interesting is you know that we we, we both recorded it. In other words, I did James's version, and Lou Adler did Carol's version. You know, um, you know, I don't know if you know the story behind that, where how that all happened. No, but go on. Well, um, Carol, as you know, when when we went to America, and I wanted to make the second album, for, the one for Warner Brothers, which was going to be simpler, I had not yet chosen a piano player and was looking for the a, a pianist, and I had heard. A lot of Carol's demo. I was a huge Carol King fan, of course, because you know she'd written all these unbelievably great songs that we knew and loved. Um, people forget now how, how many hits she had long before the Tapestry yeah, era. Yeah, yeah, but the know, Brill Building, like, the Brill Building. She had thirty something, forty something hits. Crazy, starting with "Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow" when she was eighteen. You know, not bad. And um, so, um, when I got to hear some of Carol's demos of those songs, which Screen Gems Publishing had. There were many copies of them because they used to send out, of course, CDs to everybody. Um, and uh, I loved the piano playing and thought it would be perfect for James. So I met Carol through Cooch. He was in a band with her called The City at one point. So when I met her, you know, having done a bit of fan groveling, which I, because I, such a, I was impressed to meet her, I said, would you consider playing piano on this record we're about to make uh, with James? And she hadn't heard of James or heard him. So... She came over to my house. She and James met for the first time and mm. sat and played together because I encouraged them to do so. And she agreed to play on the record. And uh, then when we, when the record started to become a big hit, we we owed the Troubadour another week. They used to have this option thing where you had to play there again, and we did. But I wanted to do it with with the band who played on the record. I'd put this band together with Russ Kunkel, um, a couple of different bass players, not Lee Scar at that point, and we hadn't found him yet. Oh, yes. I was, oh, yeah. Not yeah. Lee. Lee didn't play on Sweet Baby James. People think he did, but we that's hadn't right. found that's, him yet. That's right. Yeah. Um, it was uh, someone London. I think. John London played on it. Randy Meisner played yeah, on it. That's and right. Uh, That's right. Randy Meisner, the beat, the Eagles. Yes. Well, so we not, used three different yet, bass players. But uh, but by the time we did, were playing this gig at the Troubadour, I'd asked Carol if she would play the Troubadour uh, for a week with James, and she agreed to do that. And James had an idea. He said, look, you know, no one's going to know who you are. It's this little girl playing the piano, which is what she looked like. She looked like a teenager. And 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 why don't you do a little opening set? Because he knew she was planning a solo career of her own and planning to make her own solo record. So he said, why don't you do a little 20-minute, half-hour set in front of me? And all you've got to do is sing some of those songs and tell people you're the woman who wrote them. They'll be completely amazed, which they were. And uh, on the opening night, we did our sound check in the afternoon. Carol did her sound check, just her and the piano, after hours. And James and I stuck around to give her moral support. She was extremely nervous. This was her first gig as a solo artist. And uh, so she was doing her sound check, and she, for the purposes of the sound check, she decided to run a song she had just finished writing the night before, and that was You've Got a Friend. And James and I looked at each other and kind of went, shit, what was that? You know, and James, <laughs> to this day, thinks it's one of the best pop songs ever written, to the point where he asked her if he could learn it when she said yes. Uh, and then 
I think it fell to me, as I recall, to ask whether she'd consider letting us record it because I was there was no doubt in my mind she was going to record it for her own first album. But contrary to the sort of rules of show business, Carol said that she would be honored to have James record it as well. So that's how we, within a couple of weeks of each other, I was producing the the James version of You've Got a Friend. We did have one secret weapon, which was James's girlfriend at the time was Joni Mitchell, and she sang all the background parts for me. <laughs> so all that, all the you just call out my name stuff is all Joni. And wow. and uh, Lou Adler produced, because Carol didn't play on James's, there's no piano on it. And and then Lou Adler was producing Carol's version at A&M Studios up the road, close. And the miracle is, of course, that they both were successful. We had the big hit single. And Carol had a key track on her album Tapestry that sold a gazillion billion. Wow, wow, wow. And was Lou Adler already involved with Carol yes. at this point? So you must have thought, I'd really fancy that gig as well, producing her. Uh, no, it didn't occur to me. Lou, Lou, you know, I knew Lou. Lou was a pal and he was, he, he was Carol's guy and that was, you know, fine. Because, boy... You weren't you weren't really what you you weren't a sort of scattergun producer, were you? It's like you were very much attached to, you know, an artist at a time. Yes, I think that's probably James. Because you come yeah. because you managed James as well, right? I did, and Linda. How did you find managing? How did you find that? Uh, good. I mean, I enjoyed it. And people yeah. say now, wasn't it weird, you know, being the manager and the producer, which was unusual at the time. And the answer is no, it avoids all kind of conflict. You know? yeah. so, well, of course, Andrew Lou Golden yeah. was producer and manager of The Stones in those early days. Yes. Okay. How are you as a producer, Peter? Because I know I've, I've heard you say before how, how one of the things that appealed to you about producing was you were interested in all the technical side, the yeah. compressors and everything. Yeah. So are you technical? Are you a hands-on-the-board guy? Do you know your soft knee from your ratio? And um, that? Sort of. Yeah, I, I, I know that one. Um, yeah. Yes. But, <laughs> but in the end, do I rely on the engineer But to, to make it sound the way I right. think it should sound? Yes. But am I aware, just like now, you know, if I had to operate Pro Tools or Logic myself, it would take months to make records. But, um, but I know what everything does, and I can point at the screen That's and say, right. put that bit there and tune this bit and slow down this bit or whatever right. and all the things that now you can do which i'm extremely happy about well when you work with linda ronstadt i have to say guy i was listening to you're no good in this my little studio earlier i mean it's mm -hmm. 1974 it sounds like 1984 i mean it yeah the yeah, quality yeah, yeah. of the track i mean the guitar has a sort of chorusy effect on it i mean that actually yes. is that was a broken machine it was a it was some kind of weird disc delay device that I think it was a Neumann. It was German for sure, but it wasn't working properly, and it had this weird warble in it, and, and we loved it. Uh, yeah. um, that was Val Garay Engineering, who was very good, and and on that record in particular, Andrew Gold had a lot to do with it too, who played almost all the instruments. Yeah. Oh, by the way, can I say one one of what's been a fantastic thing of uh, of doing my research for this is today in my studio, full pelt. I listened to Lonely uh -huh. Boy, which I haven't heard to. Oh, my God. And it's one of those records that I've only ever heard. I loved it. But if I, I'll be honest, I didn't buy it. It was 1976. I wasn't buying it. So I have only ever heard it on the radio. I've never heard it hi-fi like that. What a record. Thank Production. you. Production is amazing. You know, but, but dare I say, Peter, was that the sort of, did you invent Yacht Rock at that point? Was it the it's it's yeah, the absolute I, epitome I, I of where music was going. Even though you never produced one of those actual acts, 
But which ads? Sorry, what, 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 what are we what what it, Who are we're talking about? Logins and Messina, the Doobie Yacht Brothers, Rock. Uh-huh. Um, Yacht Rock. It's you know, it's a, it's called. Yeah, I know. I don't really know why, but I've heard the phrase. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. music I love to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, that, yeah, but that that Andrew is, the track is uh, Andrew Gold track is is what the sound was is mm-hmm. incredible. But he was very connected with with Linda. Okay, let's go back a little bit and just just you yeah, yeah. discovering I, I Linda Ronstadt. <clears throat> She'd been kicking around for a little while making records, hadn't she? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she made but not it successful. Before, I guess. Well, even first, it, well, they had a hit with the Stone Ponies, yeah, different right. drum, and then she had a solo hit with Long Long Time, but the albums had not been successful, and the the, the records weren't consistently successful. But she'd had two hits, the you know the Stone Ponies was the band she was in, yeah, um, and then and that was Long Long Time, which was a big hit, and uh, I mean that was different drums, sorry, and uh, then Long Long Time was a Linda hit. But how did she end up coming under your wing? I'd heard her at the bitter end in New York. Somebody told me to go and see her, and I was immensely impressed, and uh, and by her voice and and by her in general, and and met her afterwards. And we, I I think the first thing we decided was that I would help produce her. She was finishing that album, Don't Cry Now, which had had multiple producers and was still unfinished. And I kind of pulled that one into into some sort of shape and help help to finish it. And that came out. And during the process, yeah, we were talking about management as well. Initially, she talked to me about management. I'd said no, because I was managing Kate Taylor at the time. And I thought that might be a conflict to try and break two, two girl singers at once. But then Kate decided show business at that stage was not for her and sort of retired. And at that point, Linda called me up again and I, I became a manager as well. And the first, and then the next album, the one I produced from scratch was Hard Like a Wheel. And that was the, the big hit. Talking of your chronology, Peter, that's the thing. It's, it's, it, it is just endless. It's impossible to listen to you. And you, though, I mean, you've never had a lull, have you? <laughs> it would no, no, not really, no. It's like you're either running a company, you're managing, or you're producing, te- God knows how many records. And then writing songs. Then I, I heard the thing you did with Steve Martin and Edie Brickell the yep. other day, which was fantastic. Oh, thank you. That's- yeah, I love doing that. And we turned that into a Broadway musical. That's right. But yeah, what was the musical? Sorry, I don't know. Um, Bright Star, it was called. It wasn't a hit, right. really a hit. It ran for about a hundred shows, which is which is respectable, but no one gets their money back. So it's a, in, in Broadway terms, <laughs> it's not a hit. But um, it was great, and uh, I enjoyed doing that very much. And you just did some work with Elton, didn't you, recently? Yes. I well, I helped Elton with a yeah. I, I saw Elton just the other day um, at Joni's birthday, actually, and. Um, but yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I did a, a Elton tribute album. I got to produce Ed Sheeran doing "Candle in the Wind" got, and yeah. a bunch of cool versions. It was great, fun, fantastic. Yeah, you you cross so many generations, Peter, don't you? From the Beatles to Ed Sheeran. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, what, anything? What's That's what's amazing. next, Peter? Oh, well, I just finished an album with Susanna Hoffs. Oh, fantastic! Um, That's right. You're um, saying yeah, um, fantastic. I've always loved her voice, and it's great. It's yeah. coming out in April. Oh, wonderful! I will and who wrote those? Who wrote the Brilliant. songs on there? Uh, different songs from different people. It's a it's a collection, kind of like the same way we did a Linda album in a way, just picking songs that we both really liked. And but what I like about similar. that is that there is a there is there has been a, a a fashion recently over the last ten years probably of 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 taking an artist and having all different producers, whoever wrote the song produces it. Right. But and right. there's no there's no central focus on the record when that happens. 
Right. I think that can that can happen, but also because many songwriters are very good producers now as well, so it it can work both ways. But yes, I agree with you. It makes to to worry about the focus of the album. You have to think of the concept of an album at all, which many people don't. Yeah. In other words, maybe maybe even mentioning the word album is old school, you know? Because yeah. <laughs> ultimately now you make a track at a time and do what, what, do what well, you will with it, you know? Well, what's interesting is because my son has a band and, and what's interesting is, as you're right, because the, the, the formats we had before were down to what was available with the data storage format, be it a single yeah, or exactly. an album or a CD. Exactly. And now, so now that doesn't exist at all. And what seems to be the weapon of choice now that you can have as many tracks as you want is the EP. They, yes, but but again, yeah, I think I think more even more significantly, there is. It used to be that music was consumed in chunks of a certain size, you know, and yeah. and the size of those chunks of music was was predicated on the technical means of delivery. And now there's absolutely no limit. You can deliver one song, or you could deliver a week's worth of music. It, you know, it it works either way. So much was determined, and probably the length of a single was initially determined by how long you could get on one side of a 78, you know? That, oh, right, that yeah. sh- a single should be, quote, between three and four minutes. I, I did hear mm-hmm. that, that the reason mm-hmm. that uh, that albums, vinyls, is a tw- about 20 minutes each side is because that was the length of, uh, of a movement, roughly the length of a movement from a symphony. I don't could know how... Be. Could be. I know that yeah, the that length sense. of a CD was determined on, on some specific piece of music. Mr. Akida at Sony wanted to be make sure it could be included. Uh, that original oh, wow. 66 minutes or whatever it was. The medium inspires the art. Yes. Peter, lovely. it's yeah. been lovely having you on. Uh, please forgive yeah, me. I'm sorry if, I'm, if we're running out of time. Happy to do more anytime you no. want to. There's probably stuff we haven't talked about, but I'm, uh, honestly, I'm... There's ton. There's I never mean to sound impatient, about. but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it whatever you need. No, no. You, you, oh, that's very, you very filled us with some wonderful stories and, uh, I mean, everything from Swinging London to, to Laurel Canyon. Oh, there you go. Nice uh, trip down all these. I mean, it's geography that we offer you as well, isn't it? It is geography, yeah, and history. Don't change the subject. Um, uh, but, yeah, as, as you said, Swinging London to Laurel Canyon. But he was really yeah, in the centre of both of those events, you know, I mean, to be actually in the room with Paul McCartney, having watching TV with him, probably, you know, and then yeah. getting songs written yeah. by him and then going up to Laurel Canyon and, and manage and getting Joni to sing backing vocals on a song he's doing. Yeah, but I always think that, that, that what's a real mark of uh, if someone's, you know, like a good person it is how long they work with the same people. You know, and it, it is extraordinary the loyalty he has and his artists have to yeah. him, like Linda and James. It just goes is, on. Is it this on. point I'm going to have to tell you that I'm leaving? <laughs> I'm handing in my notice. No, no, no. Of course I'm not. We're back next week. We are. Of course we are. And uh, it's another good one. This, is a, this has been a great run. We're loving it. It's. I mean, it was lovely doing it on the road. It's lovely doing it. Season four. Home. It's very good so far. Um, and thank you for listening thank you for producing Ben Jones who's producing for Gimme Sugar and um, it's good night from me and it's good night from them small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.